Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Margot Landman. I am Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Dr. Denise Ho, Assistant Professor of Chinese History at Yale and author of Curating Revolution, Politics on Display in Mao's China. Denise is also a fellow in the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Broadly speaking, your book is about select exhibitions in Shanghai between the establishment of the PRC in 1949 and the end of the Cultural Revolution in 1976, with a little bit of follow-up into the post-Mao years, especially regarding the Shanghai Museum. Please describe the exhibitions you chose and why you chose them. What do they tell us about the state and revolution in Mao's China? Thanks for the question. So I think the, the kinds of exhibitions in my book can roughly fall into two categories. So bookending my study are a chapter on the First Party Congress site where the Chinese Communist Party was founded and the Shanghai Museum, which is perhaps the finest uh, art collection in China today. So those are exhibitions, I think, of the state in power that tell a story of revolution and Chinese history that underscore uh, the state and its legitimacy. In between the middle of, of those two bookends are a series of exhibitions that you may not have heard about before, um, exhibitions that are temporary, um, are uh, more propagandistic in nature, that are associated with political movements, everything from uh, anti-superstition campaigns to uh, the Cultural Revolution Red Guard exhibits. So. Those exhibits I call um, exhibits of the state in revolution. And so I think one of the contributions of my book is to show how exhibitions were used not just to reflect a state narrative, but to teach people how to engage in a political campaign, so how to model uh, revolutionary action. The examples you give, as you just said, vary considerably from the First Party Congress site to the museum, from the Fangua Lane to the Love Science Eliminate Superstition exhibition. In the last, the Love Science Eliminate Superstition struck me as particularly interesting because in some ways it seemed very incongruous. Mm. At the same time that the fight against superstition was taking place, this campaign was a year or two before the Cultural Revolution began. We have a distinctly unscientific, maybe you could call it superstitious, cult of Mao developing. If science is the search for truth about natural phenomena based on fact and evidence, a sweeping definition, but for our purposes, maybe okay, then how is that squared with the requirement that whatever is said by the party must be accepted as truth, regardless of fact or evidence? That's a really interesting question. So I think one of the things that I show in that chapter about 
um, exhibitions for children on loving science eliminate superstition is the ways in which I think science was itself an ideology that the exhibits were arranged in terms of a question and an answer, a question and an answer. Um, what about the existence of ghosts? Or why do plants move when you touch them? Um, so there's a, a, a list of questions. And then the reason that these are wrong are because science. Um, and so in the context of the exhibition, there were a couple of experiments. But most of it was about learning something to tell back. So in that way, I think um, you have a, a presentation of science that's not so much about scientific method, but um, the facts as true because they are scientific. And I think that that's where the intersection between the political facts um, or political truth comes in, because they are true because of this political ideology. But then, of course, Marxism is a social, social science. Um, so in, in both cases, um, I think... Uh, science and ideology become intertwined. Mm -hmm. You talk at various points about participatory propaganda, which is a wonderful phrase. What exactly does it mean, and how does it manifest itself in the exhibitions you explore? One of the questions that I asked myself, especially as I was wrapping up the book, is what's special about exhibitions? Why is this any different from any other kind of political propaganda, where, whether it's a song, model opera, um, newspapers, uh, children's books? What's different about exhibitions? What can we tell about exhibitions? And I think the thing that's different about exhibitions is that it occurs in a space, and it's done in a group. So this idea of participatory propaganda. So it's also a site, not just where people are looking at things on display, but where people can uh, recite political slogans, where they can tell stories about the past, they can denounce a class enemy, um, they can think about, um, or they can reenact re a house search where uh, people's houses were ransacked at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. So, uh, so yes, it is participatory propaganda. And maybe one way to sum this up is to think about one interview I did with an artist who made these kinds of exhibitions, or he did pictorial exhibitions during the Cultural Revolution, and I asked him, so how is an exhibit different from other kinds of propaganda? And he said, well, it's, it's just not like reading a book at home by yourself. You're in a group, you're being watched. Um, other people are also around you and are exhibiting a kind of emotion. And you also have to, something he pointed out to me is that you have to look up at exhibits oftentimes. You look up at a big painting or you look up at a slogan on a wall. Um, so in that way, it's embodied um, and ritualistic in a way that other forms of propaganda are not always. I wonder if that's a particularly Chinese experience of an exhibit or a museum. Because I don't think of myself when I go to a museum as doing something as part of a group. There are other people there, mm -hmm. but it's not an ensemble. It's very distinct individuals doing their own thing. But that's not what you're describing. That's not what I'm describing. I don't think it's um, specific to China. Um, when I, one of my colleagues, um, I uh, grew up in Moscow, and he said, oh, this reminds me of things that I, I went to as a young pioneer. Um, so I think there, there are those kinds of echoes. Um, 
so the kind of ritual um, behavior and this idea of being watched is not uniquely Chinese. But I think also when, when you think about the birth of the museum in the 19th century in Europe, museums were seen as a way of educating working class people and they were supposed to dress up and uh, be quiet and file through the museum in a certain way. So um, I think the, the group aspect is not uniquely Chinese. Uh-huh. Your description of the Shanghai Museum as revolutionized antiquity is another great phrase. And again, what exactly does it mean? As I think about the, your description of the Shanghai Museum specialists who were trying to save works of art, but you don't call them works of art. You call them cultural relics. Cultural relics and works of art sounds different to me. But when they were saving these objects, were they preserving revolutionary antiquity or works of art or both? Um, let me start with the word wangwu. Um, so I decided to preserve the, the, the Chinese pinyin form of the word for, but it's translated as cultural relic, so cultural object. Um, and I, I decided to do that um, because I think that cultural relic um, it encompasses a much greater scale than some than just antiquities. Um, in the Republican period, you use the word gu wu, which was translated as antiquities into English. Um, when I've seen writing on the subject in France, they they use the word patrimoine for patrimony. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but I think uh, cultural relic can include documents. It can include um, physical sites, um, like not just the things in the temple, but the temple itself, historic trees, um, historic vistas, or, or places that are no longer. Um, so I decided to retain uh, the word cultural relic for that reason. Um, and your second question was, a, the second part of your question was about... Um, Were they preserving or protecting revolutionary antiquity or works of art or both in their own perceptions the people who the staff of the Shanghai Museum so I think they believed that they were preserving history Mm -hmm. and um, they would say things like or they would write things like we're Marxist historicists we must not mutilate history and here they're quoting Mao and so I I think for them the material of history um, was uh, was what they were saving. But then if history is progressing toward revolution, then it's not necessarily separable. Another way to think about it is to, to think that, um, is to use the words of the historical actors. They believed, or they said they were, um, they were saving the handiwork of the laboring masses. And of course, we might look back on that and say that this is a uh, a slogan, but of course it was a very useful slogan because it allowed them to do their jobs and to preserve antiquity. And, and these people were trained museum professionals, and some of them were artists or had been trained in an artistic tradition. And so for them, I think tradition and antiquity were part of revolution, and we think of them as somehow separate, that revolution is a whole-scale rejection of the past. But in uh, the People's Republic, this was not, not the case. Mm-hmm. And that leads very nicely to a question or two about your sources. Clearly, you spent a lot of time in archives. When you were 
getting into the archives. Did you describe your project to the people who let foreigners into archives? And how did they respond? Did you have trouble getting into the archives? Um, I was doing my the bulk of my archival research between 2006-2007, and at that time when you applied to use the archive, um, the Shanghai Archive historically has been the most open, and when you apply you have a passport or some kind of form of national ID, and you write in the form what you're researching, and at that time I said Bahu, um, so cultural preservation, and I think um, it's that was that was understandable. Uh, there's a category of museum studies. It's something that's taught at Fudan University. There's a program in museum studies at Shanghai University. So I don't think um, it was necessarily seen as something foreign, but it wasn't seen as something that people work on frequently. Mm -hmm. And then you did a whole bunch of interviews. I did. And were people willing to talk with you, obviously they did it, but their memories of the Mao years and their roles, did anybody turn you down? No. Um, I wanted to ask about people's memories of exhibitions, and I don't think um, the, the most political forms are probably the Red Guard exhibitions. So in that case, I would ask people if they'd heard about them, if they'd visited one, what do they remember seeing? Um, and I think those kinds of localized um, memories were not um, necessarily that sensitive. It wasn't, for example, about violence or participation in violence. Uh, so in that way, I think that my bigger challenge was people just saying that they didn't remember anything at all. Uh -huh. um, and I had been inspired by uh, Barbara Mittler's book, The Continuous Revolution, where she did a lot of interviews of people and what they remembered of the model works. And people had very strong memories of the model works and not very strong memories of exhibitions. So I would say that my experience during oral history was uh, just getting a blank look and, and not remembering um, that much about the exhibitionary culture of that period. What does your work on pre-reform and opening exhibition culture tell us about today's work in the area? Is there still as much participa participatory propaganda? Any museum reflects ideological choices, but is there more room now for art for art's sake, if we can put it that way, in contemporary China? Uh, that's that's a big question. I think that's actually three questions. Um, I think there is, yes, there is um, room for art for art's sake, but I'm not an art historian, so I, I'll put that one aside. Um, your question about whether there's participatory, participatory propaganda, I think yes, absolutely. Um, the first time uh, I lived in China a long term was in Hunan province, and I remember going with my students at Yali Middle School to an exhibition about youth crimes. And the students mm -hmm. went through in groups um, with a docent, learning an ideological and political lesson in a way that I think is not that different um, from some of the cases that I describe. Um, I think in uh, China today, you asked about what kinds of lessons we have for China today. I think um, for the most part, you have exhibitions of the state in power. Um, and 
uh, like the National Museum of China that, that have the official narrative. The exhibitions of the state and revolution, I think, are much uh, fewer and far between. I think they come out when China is in a political campaign mode, like there's an exhibition about heretical cults. Or in 1989, there was an exhibition uh, post-1989. And those are also places to learn the script um, and to learn what the latest political line is. Um, but I think that the, so those have echoes of the Mao period. Anti-corruption exhibitions definitely have echoes of the Mao period. But I think those are the exhibits of the state in power, not the state in revolution. Um, th that, that is the, the state of contemporary politics in China today. Great. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you very much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me.